Well, good morning. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Ricky. I'm sorry I haven't had the chance to meet you yet. If I've not gotten to meet you, uh, we are continuing to walk through the book of Ephesians. And we are walking from a semi-controversial thing in the church to a more controversial thing. Uh, but such is the pattern when you preach section by section through books of the Bible. Uh, you don't get to skip any of the bits that you might want to skip. So uh, we just wrapped up. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We just spent three weeks talking about Ephesians 5.18, which calls us to be filled with the Spirit. Um, and obviously there's much more you could say about the Holy Spirit, much more you could say about spiritual gifts in particular. But um, we are going to, that's one of the reasons why we're starting a series of prayer and worship nights, to press into uh, worship and prayer and, and being able to learn a little bit more about these things. So our first talk this Friday is going to be a very brief talk on who is the Holy Spirit. And we want to help our church see that the Holy Spirit is not an it, it's not a thing, it's a he. It, he is the third person of the Trinity. And, and what does that mean? Why is that good news? So uh, please join us Friday. We're going to be, again, hearing a short teaching and then praying and worshiping in response to that. Uh, there will actually be childcare as well, so the kids will get a movie night if, if the kids want to come. I think that will be a ton of fun for them. Additionally, there are some follow-up resources to that section on the Spirit on our church blog. Uh, look for the, the post that says, uh, the Spirit and the gifts are ours, which is a quote from the Luther hymn, the Spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. So, um, yeah, please check that out. Now, we're moving from being filled with the Spirit to, well, of course, next you would talk about gender and marriage and family. But that's exactly what Paul does. He goes from being filled with the Spirit and talking about how we're to give thanks, we're to sing, and then all of a sudden starts talking about wives and husbands and their differing roles. And you think, what, what, what's going on here? So we're going to read the context here. And as we do, uh, some of this may be new to you, especially if you're new to the faith. You may think, man, this, is, this feels so foreign to what we experience in our world today. Well, uh, let's just walk through the text, get the context, and then we'll begin to unpack it together. And remember, as we read, this is God's Word. In every age, God's Word stands unchanging, inerrant, uh, and every age must change in response to it, not it change in response to the age. Ephesians 5, uh, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, I'm going to read very briefly the background to this in Genesis 1:27. The backdrop to this uh, from Genesis 2, that quotation, 127, just says this. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. This is God's word. Lord, I pray you give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you have for us in your word. I pray that we'd be able to uh, clear away the fog of our cultural confusion and be able to clearly understand and receive the good and the joy of the fact that you have made human beings in your image. And it is glorious. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Oh, I couldn't decide what to title this message, so I ended up going with uh, probably one of the most unusual titles. If you look for this on the church website, this is what you're looking for. The Madness, Magic, and Mystery of Gender. Because it really is. Like, it is craziness out there. It is magical. It is mysterious when we come to talk about gender. And we arrive at this section on gender and marriage in the midst of massive cultural confusion. Recently, I've been listening to a new podcast of covering uh, British author J.K. Rowling that I think di- illustrates the difficulty of this moment. Um, J.K. Rowling has had her books burned three different times for three separate reasons. First, her series is about a boy who discovers he is magical and he can do magic. And so people, people were opposed to that and so they burned the books that time. Uh, didn't stop them from becoming probably the best-selling books outside of the Bible. Second, the series, uh, second after the series was done, she retroactively said that one of the main characters was gay. So people got mad, burned the books. Most recently, uh, she revealed that she was a sexual assault survivor and has been fiercely advocating for what she's calling safe spaces for biological women. Uh, in prisons, in locker rooms, and things like that, incurring the wrath of a lot of folks in the UK. Uh, and so her books are being burned yet again. People who got Harry Potter tattoos, tattoos are, are giving them laser removed and then putting them back on and having the laser removed again. And here's the interesting thing about that. I think our culture's relationship to her illustrates how confused our culture's relationship is with gender and anthropology. Uh, These are fundamental questions. What is a human? Is there magic inside each of us? What relationships are okay or not okay? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Can it even be defined? And in the midst of all that cultural chaos, Ephesians 5 drops with surprising matter-of-factness into our laps. Perhaps as you read the words, you felt how they sound to people in our age. Perhaps you cringed, ooh, does it really mean that? Does it really say that? Now, before we get into the specifics of husbands and wives, uh, which we will do over the next couple of weeks, I want to back up and ask two much more fundamental questions that we're going to answer using the book of Ephesians. Two questions that frame the issues in our culture. And I don't want to assume we all have the same framework. So we're going to back up and, and kind of take a running start at this, if, that would, if, if I could say it that way. First question we're going to answer is, why are there differences here between men and women, between husbands and wives? Uh, Wouldn't it be more appropriate for Paul to just say, now human beings who are married, everybody make sure to do this and this. Gives the same directions to everybody. That seems fair. No, Paul doesn't do that. He differentiates these uh, specific calls and commands. Second, why would someone dare to tell someone else How to live as a man or as a woman or as a husband or as a wife. In our culture, our reference point is that we define for ourselves what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. Now, I want to allow Ephesians to help us answer those fundamental questions. But rather than this turning into this kind of a weird academic exploration or science exploration where we're showing graphs and chromosomes and historical precedents and all that stuff, I want to drop this all the way down to the kind of where we actually live. I want you to ask, what does it mean for you to be a man or to be a woman? What does that mean? Is that a real thing? Is that something you define for yourself? And I want to offer six, or five rather, fundamental truths from the book of Ephesians that I think help in this moment. First fundamental truth, you matter. You matter. Your life matters. So many people go through life wondering if they actually matter, if anyone actually cares, if anyone sees them or acknowledges them. And Ephesians says gloriously from the beginning of the letter, you matter. Ephesians 1, uh, Paul is writing to these Christians in Ephesus and he encourages them in Ephesians 1 saying, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. What what Paul is encouraging this church with is telling them, God knew you before you were born. Not, Not only did God make you, he knew you even before he made you. He designed you and he set his love on you. 
And he planned out a purpose for your life. And even knowing that you would rebel and turn away against him, he still chose to set his love on you and to go after you and to redeem you and to, and it says, reconcile you and adopt you as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, perhaps you're a woman and you're thinking, okay, or maybe you're a man and you're thinking, okay, uh, uh, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Well, there's, there's the patriarchy again. Sons, why do we have to be sons? Why can't we be sons and daughters? Well, it's actually a very specific language here. This is where the Bible's specificity when it comes to language is a gift. Because in the first century, if you were not a son, well, only sons inherited. Only sons inherited the legal rights and privileges fully of their father, not daughters. But, and, and, and especially in, in terms of Roman culture, if you weren't of a maybe Roman citizen family, you would not have Roman citizenship, meaning all the privileges of your family would get passed down to the sons. And God is saying here, regardless of whether you are a man or a woman, rich or poor, Gentile or Jewish, you are treated by God and elevated and adopted to being as close to him with all the rights and privileges he could possibly bestow on you as a son. That's what he's saying. You, Ephesian, maybe Gentile woman, maybe poor man, you are adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. Notice how Ephesians doesn't ground our mattering in how pretty you are or how toned you are or how talented you are or how successful you are. It doesn't ground that you matter in your family or your culture or your workplace. It doesn't even ground... You're mattering in what you believe about yourself. That's another common thing in our culture. Well, if you're going to matter, you have to convince yourself. You have to put your meaning in yourself, and then you matter because you believe you matter. No, no, no. Listen, man, there's a lot of days where I don't think I matter. But Ephesians reminds us you matter because you matter to God. And that can't be taken from you. Regardless of whether you're rich or poor, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're American or whatever, right, that cannot be taken for you because you matter to the Lord. Now, uh, one of the interesting notes in this podcast I was listening to about J.K. Rowling is they were asking her, why do you think this is such a universal story? Why is it so popular in so many cultures and places around the world of this, this young boy who's kind of uh, locked up and demeaned by his, his family, discovers he can do magic and, and enters into this magical world? Why do people resonate with that? And she said she thinks it's because people want to, want to believe that there is a kind of magic in themselves that they, they can feel almost on the edges of their mind that if they could only discover it and unlock it would give their life greater meaning, right? Give them agency and, matter, and, and mattering in the world around them. Now, again, I'm not promoting occult magic here, but I believe every human being has an innate desire for l seeing something in, of, in and of ourselves that is, if I could say it this way, magical, we, we walk around knowing there must be something magical about us. But there is a deeper magic we found in Scripture than what our culture can offer. It is a magic woven into the strands of our DNA and, and born on our fingerprints. It is the very image of God, what we just read. You were made in the image of God, that when God made humanity, He made humanity as the pinnacle of creation with a unique imaging of who he is that can't be found in, in a thousand galaxies outside of us or in the depths of the Grand Canyon or, or in the moon and sky above us, right? It is uniquely shining out, the image of God uniquely shining out through humanity. That is why you, friend, you today sitting right here, you matter. You matter. You matter to God. Second, you matter as a man or as a woman. Now, it's important and more important than we think that Paul gives differing encouragement and direction to husbands and wives. And he roots these differing directions not in a changeable cultural point of reference, but in creation and in Genesis 1 and 2. He quotes Genesis, I believe it's 2.24, where he says, This mystery is profound. I'm saying, oh no, rather, uh, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That's Genesis 2. 
that is kind of laid on top of that verse we read in Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this, this image of God that God makes, this mattering to God, is, is not done in one, if you could say it this way, gender. One, just males or just females. Male and female are his design for creation that it might better reflect his image. Now, that changes the conversation from squabbling over chromosomes or historical precedents to, to approaching then maleness and femaleness with a breathless awe at the design of God that he would make something so glorious. Look, God created human beings as male and female in his image. Now, I'm not saying that, uh, that we are a trinity, so please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. But God is Trinitarian, right? God is Father, Son, and Spirit, as we've been talking about for the last few weeks, right? All, all, all God, all equal, all distinct. And so when God creates, he doesn't create another trinity. So if you think you're a trinity, you need some help. Um, We'd love to talk to you after the service if you're like, yeah, I think I, I kind of play the role of the spirit in my family. No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, let's not do that. Let's not say that. People get wacky about this stuff. But what we can say is this. The Trinity being distinct and yet one can't be fully imaged, can it? But God in his wisdom chooses to give a glimmer and a glimpse of that Trinitarian unity and distinction by creating male and female. That, if I could say it this way, that we might hear the image of God resound in creation, not in mono, but in stereo. Now, I'm going to date myself here. I was talking to somebody in the first service about this, and we were just lamenting how old we are. But um, I still remember the, when I first got a CD player and headphones, and I could hear in my headphones stereo sound. Now, I know how I sound right now to anybody who's like 15. I'm like, okay, Grandpa, that must have been a big moment for you when Teddy Roosevelt won World War II and you got stereo headphones. Um, no, but, but, but before that, you just get, you know, mono sound. It's just, uh, all the sound is just, boom, hitting you with the same. But I still remember putting the headphones on and being like, oh, my gosh, I can hear the guitar over here. I can hear the piano over here. It's over here, and then it's over there, and then they're together. It's amazing, right? Or anybody's ever you know, put together a surround sound system where you're like, the, you know, I could hear the roar of the transformers behind me and then the things exploding in front of me. It's amazing, right? That difference and distinction is more glorious than just one big wall of sound hitting you from the front, right? Similarly, human beings, it could have just made one of us, it just blip, 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 just reproduces like that. But rather, God makes male and female that his image might be heard and resounding throughout creation in stereo, making it more beautiful and glorious than it would have been otherwise. Look, I love, I love when we occasionally will have moments where, we had some this morning where in worship we have men leading out and singing and then other moments where we have women leading out and singing. And when you have all the men in the church singing, it is unique and glorious and powerful. Um, and if you have just women singing, it is unique and glorious and in a different kind of, it, it, it's, it's, it's just a different sound. And when those two things come together, it's glorious, right? Now listen, I, I've been to conferences where it's just men singing. And for the first like set, it's amazing. And then after the third or fourth set, I'm like, man, okay. Every song sounds like this. You know, it's like, man, we got to get some variety in here, right? God makes it such that men and women across the various aspects of life complement each other and shine the glory and resound the glory of God, the image of God out in creation as male and as female. Now, here, man, here, here, is, here is where I think we often live. Scripture tells us that you, friend, you matter as a man and you matter as a woman. God offers in his design something that we cannot find. Look, I, I, as I was talking to people, especially after the first service, I think, Almost every human being right now in our era of cultural confusion, confusion walks around wondering, am I, if you're male, am I a good man? And maybe that being a good man is defined by your dad 
or your culture, or I don't want to be like my dad. I'm going to be the anti-dad. Or you walk around thinking, am I a good woman? Am I good at being a woman? Am I, am I this enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I toned enough? Am I charming enough? Am I this enough? Am I talented enough? Am I successful enough? You know, right? That's what it means to be a modern woman. And, and you, or whatever, however that was shaped by your mother or your culture or those things that we walk around with this low-level sense of, am I good at that thing? And here is the, here's the thing I think Scripture would encourage you with. It is not a mistake, brothers, that God has made you men. It is not a mistake, sisters, that God has made you women. He has made it that he might shine and resound his image more gloriously throughout all creation. Look, this, this encouragement matters and is so needed. Um, I was talking to a friend recently, and they were, I was discouraged, and they were trying to encourage me. And the, the, the brother used a phrase that I just not, I've not heard somebody use with me before. And so he was just kind of signing off and going, listen, man, just want to encourage you. You, you are a caring, competent, masculine leader that I think is serving Serving people. And I was like, oh, man, thank you so much. And then after I, you know, got off the phone with him, I just thought, I don't think anyone's ever encouraged me. You're a good masculine leader. You know, a good masculine person. And I thought, okay, that, not me. I mean, have you seen me play sports? I, I this is not, this is not good. I'm not like picked lower half. I'm picked last in sports. I'm like, I'm inflicted on a team I, as a handicap. At points, um, I have no peripheral vision. I have terrible lungs. I have bad allergies. I have a bad back. Like this is just—I could go on. I can't rebuild an engine. I've—I've I've never hunted down an, an elk. Uh, I don't know how to begin to do that, other than wandering into the wilderness um, and then getting rescued by the rangers three days later. That's—that's that's what I've got. And yet, it was encouraging that the aspects he was trying to encourage me for were aspects in which he saw me trying to lay down my life for my wife imperfectly and shepherd the church imperfectly. And he was saying, yeah, that, that, that's it. I think that's what I see in the Bible, man. And I think we, we need to reclaim this, brothers and sisters, as a category of like, it's good that God has made me this way. Um, now, and, and again, but be very clear, I'm not talking about just weird cultural conventions that, that we're going to begin to impose, like, as a church, like, okay, so now all, somebody was telling me at one point in their church growing up, uh, they really wanted to reclaim, like, men being, like, you know, men of industry and leadership, you know, and so all the men started carrying briefcases around. They brought briefcases to church. You're like, yes, that's right. Hello, Frank, you know, and they're wearing suits and briefcases everywhere, and that's what it meant to be a man. That's not what I'm talking about. But rather, when we see things in Scripture that are present in a brother or a sister, we say, that's what I see, sister. That's what I see, brother. And it is glorious. I'm so glad you bring it. I'm so glad it's different. Um, we, uh, just one silly illustration. I, I grew up, I have, a really, I have a really strange life experience because I grew up with three sisters, no brothers, and I'm raising three sons, no girls. And so I was immersed for like a dec two decades in just girls. Just girls, right? And then, and now I'm immersed for a, a decade with just boys. And so recently we were on a walk and there was this kind of wooden platform thing. And my boys saw the wooden platform and without coordination, without discussing it beforehand, they jump on the platform, boom, and start fighting. They just jump on the platform and they're like wrestling and fighting and the three-year-old's just getting in and trying to push people around. And the, big, the two big ones are, you know, pushing each other back and forth. And they're just playing king of the hill. And there was no, like, coordination. There was no sitting down. Uh, well, brothers, shall we take the mountain and play king of the hill now? Oh, I think that, you know, they just do it. They just do the thing. I never experienced that with my sisters. I was never out with my sisters where the three of them began fighting in public. That shit, like, physically trying to push people off a thing. But I also have experienced wonderful moments with my sisters. I remember one time one of them, like, one of their dolls was damaged. And they were just like, oh, my gosh, this is an emergency. So they're all right there trying to figure out how to fix the doll. If that happens in my household, like a toy is damaged, the two other brothers are like, well, tough. You know, it's just like, you know, you broke that thing. Well, it happens. You know, it's just, and yet, and yet, it's important for us to recognize there is something glorious and God imaging about the fact that those responses are different, that men and women are different, not just in marriage, but beyond it, in every sphere of life. It, it matters, brothers, that you are men. It matters, sisters, that you are women. Josh Blunt, one of the fellow pastors in our family of churches, says this, in the family of God, there is no hierarchy of worth, 
no inner ring, nor elite few, but neither is there the flat, modern monotone of sameness and equality. Instead, there is God's beautiful, complex chord of complementarity, difference by design, a heavenly harmony in which the sum is greater than its parts. You matter as a man and as a woman. Third, you matter even bent. Now, the other thing that is so helpful to our understanding of gender from Ephesians is understanding that humanity is bent, and it's bent in a variety of ways as we've walked through the book of Ephesians. We went from uh, talking about how we're dead in our transgressions and sins, where we followed a culture that, that, that is, is deadly for us, that, we, that our minds have been darkened, our understanding has been twisted. And so everything from our bodies to our desires to our culture can be disordered and now bent out of shape. C.S. Lewis used this great image of humanity. Humanity was made in a, in a according to a design, but now has been bent kind of out of sorts. And he liked the metaphor of being bent because it, it, it provides, it's not just broken and shattered, just, psh, well, that's it, sorry, good luck. No, it's bent, but it can be reformed and reforged and put back into shape. And I, I think that image is helpful. I think that's what we see in Ephesians chapter 2. This means, as I said, our bodies, our desires, everything about us can be bent and disordered. Now, we experience this in many ways. There are those with a physical disorder of sex development who deserve our compassion and our help to whatever extent we're able to give it. There are those with severe clinical cases of gender dysphoria. Our, our bodies, our minds, other aspects of us are, are broken and bent in a fallen world. And we must acknowledge as well that our desires can be disordered. Ephesians 4 in particular speaks of our minds and desires being contrary to God's created order. So you can think of it as your, your mind, the shape of your mind is bent out of sorts. We must acknowledge then that all of us have places and ways in which we are bent in the area of what it means to be a human being and what it means as well to be a man or to be a woman. In Ephesians 5, in particular, Paul is, is addressing some particular ways men and women can be bent out of design. Um, and one of the interesting things about that, and you compare it to Genesis 3, is that in Genesis 3, the, the kind of the punishment or decree or discipline given to men and given to women is different. Now, it doesn't mean that they both did not sin. It doesn't mean that they both were not, you know, under judgment and need to be saved, but the, the punishment, in a sense, the, if you could say it this way, the shape of their sin was a little bit different. And so the justice God brought was slightly different as well. Josh Blunt again says this, that it takes only a little observation or human experience to confirm, to confirm the divine testimony that husbands and wives in the garden are infected with the pollution of sin in gender-specific ways at times. Apart from the grace of God, husbands do not live as loving, sacrificial heads, and protectors become Abusers, providers become neglectors. And without the influence of the gospel, wives do not experience or receive the divinely given role as helper, as life-giving or fulfilling. It becomes a constraint or a curse. And east of Eden, human, uh, harmony degenerates into dissonance. The home, no less than creation itself, groans under the futility and destruction of sin. So, uh, what is this then, what do we have to do with this then? If, if it's true that all of us as men or as women, may, maybe it's in marriage, maybe it's outside of marriage, are bent by sin and maybe even our maleness and our femaleness is, can be bent the wrong way, what then are we to do? Well, that is why Ephesians is full of grace. It's full of grace. It could have been. Our story could have been, you know, humanity chose to sin. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We followed the prince of the power of the air. And the end. That could have been the, the Bible. And yet it's not. Ephesians is chock full with grace. That God sees even people bent out of sorts, out of the design he made them for. And with compassion goes to them, lays down his life for them. That they might be saved and restored and reforged, in a sense, into what he has always meant for them and intended for them. Look, if, if you're aware of sin and failure today, we're going to end with communion. But I want to encourage you even now. Don't allow an area in your life where you feel, man, I'm just off here. 
to lead you into condemnation and hopelessness. Rather, see, but you are bent, but God loves you. In love, he predestined you for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Despite knowing that you were dead, a dead, angry, zombie rebel is what Ephesians 2 calls you. And God set his love on you and sent his son for you. You matter even bent forth. You matter to the church. This is what we've seen over the last few months in Ephesians 4. Uh, Ephesians 4 calls us, in verses 15 and 16, it says, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Very clear in Ephesians that one gender or, you know, just the males or just the females, are, that's not what Paul says. Okay, just you guys matter. The women are the competent ones. Now, just men, get out of the way. You're just making this worse. Just get out. Just like a TV dad from the 60s. You're just the worst. Get out of here. Let the, you know, let the women run this thing and you guys just try to watch the game and stay out of the way. That's not what Paul says. Neither does he say, listen, ladies, get out of the way. The males are coming in. They're about to throw their weight around and wear a built big belt buckle and shoot six-shooter pistols around in the church. I mean, that's what the church would be if it was just us. We would begin, we would start every church meeting with a, a you know, a six-shooter salute. And a six-shooter, sh- I can't speak, six-shooter salute to maleness. And the, the, the thing would be filled with holes. Thank God that's not the case. Um, But we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head from whom the whole body held together by every joint when each part is working properly makes the body grow. Meaning this, men and women, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, all of them are needed to be the body of Christ. No one is expendable. No one is unnecessary. All are part of God's design. And the church, when men or women hold back, as sisters and brothers hold back, the church is far poorer for it. Uh, there was a, Andrew Wilson has this great observation that one of the reasons that we in our Western understanding of the church end up so warped is that we tend to think of the church through the paradigm of business. And so there are some people in the church that are the CEOs, and then there's the vice presidents, and then there's the managers, and then the mid-level managers, and then the workers are down here. And so we try to turn the church into sort of a business and say, okay, well, which people are in which positions where he, Wilson points out, no, 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 the metaphor of the church is a family and a body. Meaning that, that in, in every family, the, the mother and father are both valuable and needed. In every body, the left arm and right arm are both needed. The heart and the lungs are both needed, right? This is the metaphor. Rather than trying to go, well, then who gets the top position? Who does this? No, he's saying that you're thinking about it as a Western business. Think about it in the terms that Jesus has given us to think about it as a a body, as a family. Look, I I got to experience this recently in in Alpha. We had, um, one of the things I love about Alpha is that anybody can can share honestly where they're at. And so we had... uh, a woman in our group was just sharing honestly where she was at. And she was, she was amazed at what the Lord was doing in her life. But it was still, you know, it was still tender for her. Um, and so she began to share. And she began to tear up. And so we're in this group. And, and I'm a pastor in the group. I just happen to be in the group. And I could, I could feel the, you know, Mark, the group leader, is looking at me. And I'm looking at Mark. And I'm kind of like, are you going to do something, Mark, with my eyes? Like, and Mark's looking back at me like, well, you're the pastor. Aren't you going to do something? And then there's another, you know, another guy in the group. So we look over at, at this guy, and we're kind of like, do you have something to do? And so she's just kind of tearing up, and it's just a tender moment. And I love it because one of the ladies in the group, Mary, just got up, didn't say anything, just got up, walked over, and gave this woman a, a giant hug. And just said, you know, we just want you to know we love you. And I know that this may not be easy to talk about, but, but just, just so grateful that you're here. And the, the, the woman was just so touched and helped. And, and I'm looking at Mark, and he and I were like, oh, that's what we should. That's what needed to happen right now. That's <laughs> and, you, and I was joking with Mark after the first service. You could have given us like, like, like an hour to be like, okay, here's the moment. How do you respond? And I would have come up with a lot of things, a lot of Bible verses. And Mark would have been like, well, I read this thing that would, might be helpful in this moment. And none of us would have come up with a hug. It just... <laughs> And yet that is glorious. 
Look, I just want you to hear from me. As a pastor, as a brother and as a son, sisters and mothers in the faith, I am so grateful for you. I would not be where I am in my faith apart from you. Apart from your example, apart from your encouragement, apart from your wisdom. I don't think my heart would be as tender if I'd not grown up with going to a community group with Mrs. Wheeler who never fails to have tears in her eyes when she talks about the goodness of God. I, I would not be the same. I would be colder as a Christian. Please believe, sisters and mothers, you matter so much. And brothers, let me, let me say as well, you matter. We need each other. We live in a culture in which uh, men are more isolated, more alone, uh, more separate from each other than ever before. When we desperate, What we desperately need is one another. Listen, I, I, there was a, one more story. There was a time, this is, must have been last year, where it was a difficult message or service or something like that. I don't even remember the circumstances. But I remember just feeling inadequate, like, man, I'm trying to do my best to serve the church with explaining this passage. It didn't feel like I got it right. It was kind of controversial in our culture. And so yeah, I had, I had a, a couple women in the church to say, you did a great job. And I was like, oh, thank you. You know, I appreciate that. Didn't feel like it, but I appreciate it. And as I was leaving, one of the men in the church, who was a kind of a blue-collar guy his whole life, I remember this, because he didn't usually do this, but he, he looked me in the eye, he kind of locked eyes with me, walked up, gave me a calloused hand, handshake, which is the best kind of handshake, right? A guy with calluses on his hands. He just, bam, right in. He looks in my eyes and says, good job. And then he just walked away. <laughs> that was it. That was the end of the interaction. And that was the best encouragement I got that day. Brothers, we need one another. If you are a father in the faith, please don't give up and you get to the back half of life. We need you. Press on. Be an example for us. Brothers, we need one another. Press into one another. And, and, and we need in our lives that lock, eye lock, handshake, good job more than we think. All right. Last one. I'll move on and then we'll end here. You matter to the church and you matter to the world. The world is at stake here, guys. I think in this moment of intense cultural confusion about what it means to be a man, about what it means to be a woman, about what it means to be married, the world is at stake. Look at Ephesians 5.32. It says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. Look, Paul is pouring his heart out to husbands and wives, not just because he's a busybody that likes giving people directions, like he likes ordering people around. No, he is, is calling them to be bent back into the image of Christ because husbands and wives together in their marriage are a picture of the gospel itself that in every married, marriage is carried. Someone, in a sense, if you could say it this way, in the drama of the gospel playing the part of Christ and someone playing the part of the church. And as their love story unfolds, the story of the gospel unfolds. Look, there was years ago, we went to Canada uh, on a missions trip, which doesn't make any sense to have a group of people on the U.S.-Mexican border go up to Canada on a missions trip. But that's what we did, and it was great. And one of the things we did is we did a gospel drama that we would put on in, you know, places. And so we went to this big crowded area where it was kind of a market. And so we began doing this gospel drama. And, and it, was so, it was so funny. The, the, the Canadian police are just much nicer in many ways. Um, American cops would have been like, hey, get out of here. Come here, you know. And which I, you know, appreciate. That's my language. It's okay. Um, and the, Mexi the, the, the uh, Canadian police officer comes up and he's like, hey, uh, oh, uh, sorry, but... Um, you can't do that here. Um, so if you could just wrap up, it would be, you know, wonderful. Um, again, sorry to, to interrupt. And you're like, okay. So we were not able to do the drama anymore in public places. Apparently there's a law against that. So I remember being so disappointed. Ah, and just thinking, well, man, it would be so great if we could have gotten this picture of the gospel in front of the Canadian people. And God's like, no, I, I got you. Because every time a husband and a wife love each other well, it is a drama. It is a picture of the gospel itself. And that is why, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, God sets the definition and boundaries of what it means to be married. Because he wants the marriages in the church to carry the drama of the gospel well. 
Now you might say, that, well, what about the unmarried? Which is significant. Paul is writing this unmarried. Okay, so he's, this isn't as though it's coming from out of nowhere, from an unmarried guy to a bunch of married people. We all start out unmarried, if you haven't noticed that. And we all, most of us at least, will end life unmarried. And there will be a lot of unmarried in between. And in heaven, Jesus says, we will not be married. So, what about the rest of us? And this is where Genesis 1 and 2 are so helpful, right? The, the gospel is the story of God setting, saving, seeking and saving a people for himself. It is a kind of a reenactment of Genesis 1 and 2, where God creates, sets his love on humanity. Humanity is meant to respond with love and joy and live happily ever after. But humanity does not do that. So here is the reality. Every human being, whether they're married or single, that lives out their maleness or femaleness in a way that honors God, is pointing back to God's original design in Genesis 1 and 2. And every person, married or unmarried, that presses into the relationship that they were made for, which, by the way, is not a relationship with a spouse. Nobody is going to complete you in that way. Only God will because he's the one that made you. And that's the way it was designed to work. And so every single person that presses in to their relationship with God and says, God, you are enough, is an image of Genesis 1 and 2 as it was meant to be. A glimmer of that in a world that desperately needs it. Sam Albury, who is a same-sex attracted Anglican minister who is unmarried, says that married, married couples often show the shape of the gospel to the world, where singles often show the sufficiency of the gospel to the world. So you, friend, whether you're single or married, you matter to the world. You matter. Now, um, I want to end with three, three things. I, I pray three things for my boys every night. I don't know when I started doing this, but um, I thought it might be helpful uh, to share this. I pray three things for them every night. I pray for compassion, for courage, and for conviction. First, I pray for compassion. And I think in this cultural moment, Christians need compassion. We should be those who are the most compassionate people in the world when we encounter those dealing with gender and sexuality issues. Those struggling feel that there is a fundamental disconnect between who they are meant to be and who they are. And they live in a constant friction and dissonance of those two things. But human beings, this is, what, this is why Christians should be more compassionate than anyone else. We know what it is to live in the tension of who we want to be, who we are meant to be, and who we are. We know that all of us fallen have an image that we were meant to be, but we are not that. And so we should meet those around us with compassion. We get it. That's the fall. And we want to make our lives and our church a safe place for people to ask hard questions about gender and sexuality and life and marriage. We need compassion. We want to be like Jesus who saw the crowds as sheep without a shepherd. Second, we, we want to pray for courage. We want to act in courage. We want to be a safe place for asking hard questions, but we must be a place where people will also get a clear answer. One of the, the I think, missteps some Christians make in this area is they confuse compassion for vagueness. That when people come in, it's like, well, we, you know, I don't know what it means to be a woman or a man. And we're just like, oh, I don't know either. It's so hard, isn't it? And in that moment, it might feel like, okay, yeah, we need to sit with somebody asking those hard questions and say, I know it is hard. But, it's, but we need to then also be able to point people to the scriptures and say, I know this is hard. I know it's confusing. But here is what the word says. Here's a letter from the one who made you. Can we read that together? This is one of those areas where the world around us cannot even answer the question, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Does it matter? Are they different? If you look at the Cambridge Dictionary, like I did this week, if you look up the word woman, it just refers you to the dictionary entry for female. So what does it mean to be a woman? To have female characteristics. Okay, great. So what does it mean to be female? It means to be of or related to a woman. So you're like, okay, so what was a woman again? It means... To have female characteristics. And you're like, okay, so that is to be of or around or among or kind of a woman thing. And so you're just like, okay, I don't, I don't understand. I don't, where, where, where is the definition? There isn't one. 
There isn't one. Instead, we answer the question, what is a woman? It is someone made in God's female design to reflect God's female design, and it is beautiful. We need courage. Third, we need conviction. We must live with conviction. Christians are not meant to live by accident, but by biblical conviction. And let me clarify, living with conviction is not preference. It's not, I like the 50s better. I wish all men wore hats and suits again, you know. I wish all the ladies wore skirts and dresses again. That was better. That's not biblical conviction. That is preference, right? Um, or like, oh, this is what it means. The real masculine outfit is if you've got a belt buckle and boots, that's the, that's the real man's outfit. And like I got some lumberjacks in Canada that would probably disagree with you. Carry axes every day and wear Timberland boots, right? So it's just like... Or, or some other thing, like some star athlete. There's all these different things. What, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? No, we must have those answers rooted in biblical conviction. So that we're not spouting preference, but biblical conviction. And we should have the word more and more shape what we believe about those things. All right, let me close with this. Uh, remember all the, the books of J.K. Rowling that have been burned? Well, one of, the, uh, one of the fascinating interviews I read was from a trans person who was deeply, deeply hurt by the, some of the comments of, of J.K. Rowling and her advocacy for biological women in Scotland. And this person being interviewed said essentially um, that they were so hurt because these books Rowling had written became for them a refuge. Because they were sharing their experience was much like the main character. They, were, they felt as though they were isolated and alienated from the world around them. But found in these books a doorway to where people who are different and magical are accepted and loved for who they are. Right? And that's why she said she was having her, her tattoos laser removed. Because <laughs> she was so angry. And, and as I heard this person describe that, that longing to be seen and accepted, all I could think of was, I know a far better way to be seen and accepted. Look, I think all of us as human beings look at the materialistic world around us and say, no, no, there's, there is something in me that this world around me can't explain, that, that has meaning and, and, and that matters. And I want someone to acknowledge that. And the Bible says you, that's because you have a creator that made you and loves you. And then the Bible goes a step further by creating this community of the church, of people of every race and nationality that are male and female, rich and poor, and says everyone made in the image of God can be loved and accepted and all of us reformed and reforged back into the image that God intended for us. So am I saying that the church is like Hogwarts? Sort of. A little bit. I am saying that it is the place that every human being truly longs for and that is only found in Christ and in the church. And will one day, that distance and separation between who we long to be and who we are, that gap will finally be closed when the church is reunited as the bride with Christ, our husband, and we will live forever in joy. And every single person will get a happy ending. That's what we long for. Every single person in Christ will get a happy ending. And so let me, let me just plead with you. If you're not in Christ, but you long for that, believe today. Believe in Christ. You today can be reconciled and, and experience the love and restoration of the one who made you through Christ today. Would you please take the elements of communion now as I pray for us. And Lord, I pray as we end that you would... Um, you would minister to anyone struggling with who they are today. You'd minister to anyone who feels the gap between who they long to be and who they are. And I pray that they would see that they matter to you. They matter as a man or as a woman. And I pray that if they don't know you, Father, you would, you would call them back to yourself. That they might be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ even today. And I pray for all of us who are Christians. Lord, we, would we have the compassion that you have for those around us? Would we have the courage that you have to speak your word? And would we have our convictions rooted in the Bible? 
prayer for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as we take the Lord's Supper, if you are a believer in Christ, you are welcome to participate with us. Um, if you are not, please hear this and receive this and see this as an invitation from the Lord to you today. We talked about how in love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. And as we are about to take the Lord's Supper, this is through. This represents that word through. Through the disfigured and bleeding head of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who was broken that we might be made whole. We are made sons through Jesus Christ. So, please take the bread in your hand. And the word says, the Lord Jesus, on the night of his arrest, took bread, and after giving thanks to God, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please take the bread. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Please take the cup. And now please stand. We're going to respond by singing in Christ alone. And as we sing, allow these words, and especially those words, in Christ to ring in your ears. That this is true of you, that you matter to the Lord so much that he sent his son for you. And allow them, the song, to draw your affections to Jesus. And if I could say it this way, enjoy that the voices around you are different. Enjoy if you're married that your spouse's voice is not your voice, that the people behind you are not your voice, that there are men and women, young and old, from every walk of life here. And that as we sing out the praise of God to our God, it is glorious. Amen.